Hey, it's your old pal Slim, and you're listening to Faves, an upbeat talk show where the guest chooses the topic. In this episode, that's a BBC One television series focused on the art world. Rose Eveleth is the creator of the podcast Flash Forward, a show about possible and not-so-possible futures. Its most recent season featured episodes on the potential of teleportation and its impact on urban development and tourism, while another focused on genetic editing. For this episode, she chose Fake or Fortune from the BBC. It examines and investigates the ownership history of potentially real and expensive works of art, and along with that forgery, science, and deep, deep archival research. And it's shockingly fun. Afterward, we talked about her earliest memories of falling in love with science. Enjoy. Honest to God, like the pitch of the show, it sounded like real Indiana Jones without action and somehow more exciting. Yeah. It's funny. I've been telling people about it because I've been obsessed with it. And it's hard to describe why it's interesting, I think, sometimes because you're like, it's art history. And people are like, I don't care. Um, But it's I don't know. I'm obsessed with shows that are about process. Like, how do you find out something? And this show is about a process that I know nothing about. You know, like art provenance is not a thing that I have any experience (laughs) in. And right, like the idea of how do you actually prove that this random painting you found is in fact by, you know, Degas or Monet or whoever. It's a harder question than I think I thought it would be. And the actual sort of step-by-step process that they go through is fascinating. Which episode did you watch? The first one that I watched was episode, the first episode of Chagall. Okay. And I was very dramatic. Very dramatic. Like I the so like the first time it starts out I was like I even wrote kind of like live notes and I like I one of my notes was like in all caps this seems the show seems fake itself. <laughs> in that like it is so perfected like the the yeah. two hosts um fiona bruce and philip mold are you know tasked with determining if this painting is real or fake and their conversations between each other i was like this could easily be a scripted show and i could be watching a scripted show and i don't even care it's like yeah. so well done their conversations are so intelligent and so tuned to the art world that I was like, I'm still all in. I don't even care. It's just, <laughs> I want to find out how this happens, the digging. I mean, the the amount of research yeah. in just this uh, Chagall episode alone was like staggering. Yeah, yeah. It's I love the two. I mean, Philip Mould is the art dealer and Fiona Bruce is the journalist. And I think that I really love Fiona, especially in part because she kind of is the stand-in for an audience person who mm. like appreciates art, you know, finds joy in art, but doesn't know very much about art. So there are a couple of episodes um, where she'll like straight up say at this, they have a first meeting, right? Where they're kind of talking about the case and the story and what they're going to look into. And there are a couple where she'll be like, this painting isn't very good. Like, I don't understand why <laughs> she's, like, she's like, I don't like it. You know? And so she kind of does that. She's very good at being the average listener or average person you know, viewer who's kind of like, well, why is this such a big deal? Or like, who is this person? You know, and, and Philip Mould is the art dealer. And then he has a research assistant, Ben Dorr, who's in the first five seasons. Love um, him. He's great. And the two of them, you know, they know everything there is to know about all these artists. And Fiona's the one who's like, well, wait, like, who is John Constable? Like, who are these people? Like, can you explain why this is important? You know, and like, 
she's also the skeptic always. The other two always mm. get very convinced that this painting is real from the very beginning. And she's always the one who's like, it could just be fake. <laughs> you know, and yeah. so she's got that they have a really good they have good foils to one another for sure. Yeah, there's uh, the the Chagall one in particular starts out. Um, they're kind of seeing some of his work in a really small town in a church. He'd yeah. done stained glass and they're staring, they're like taking it in. And I think it was Philip who's like, and here's a letter I have uh, from someone <laughs> who has potentially a Chagall painting. And she's like, oh, okay, let's hear it. I'm like thinking to myself, like, was this entire trip staged until <laughs> yes, that point? They yeah. didn't know that they were going to be reading a letter. It was just so cute and funny yeah. that they acted surprised. Yeah. But that episode in particular, I'm, I'm guessing they kind of all start out this way, like you said, but they, they interview the people. They get the story about how they found the painting and they have some like brief research where, well, here's a book about Chagall and this painting is in it. And this book is purportedly only containing books that are verified Chagall works. And as a viewer, you're like, well, that's it. Right. Ten minutes in, it sounds like case closed. <laughs> and yeah. I was really shocked about the the peeling of the onion that they were able to like pull back and well, the person who supposedly sold it, you know, we ha we can't track this person down. No one knows the dancer by this name. The original dealer won't speak to us. I was so enthralled in not just like the art world itself, but the, the many machinations of like art dealing. And even in the intro, they say like so many things happen between the painting shifting hands. And it, it's so right. true. Right, right, right. And with so many of these episodes, um, you know, what they'll find is family lore says, or maybe a, an unscrupulous dealer says that this is a, a Marc Chagall or a, a Villard or whoever. And the family often, and in, in the case of the Chagall painting, they paid a lot of money for it at mm -hmm. the time. Um, and, you know, if it's not real, then they've sort of wasted a lot of money. Um, but there are so many things like I had no idea before watching this show, how much the paper trail matters. And there's this great mm. moment in one of the episodes, um, the L.S. Lowry episode, where one of the cool things that they do in some of these episodes is they go and they actually interview people who got caught forging paintings. And they yeah. talk to them about their techniques and what they did. And, um, you know, some of these forgers are so good and they, they go to pains to like use the right kind of paint and like only use the, the materials that that artist would use. And then there's one where, you know, he used to mix his paint. The forger used to mix his paint with certain kinds of formaldehyde and then he would bake the painting to make it like crackle and look old. So they, they talked to all these people, but one of the people who gets caught who has, or was caught forging Fiona goes and talks to him and interviews him. And he, she asks him, you know, why did you do this? You know, why did you forge all these paintings? And he was sort of classically a frustrated artist himself, you know, and he got really mad and was feeling very annoyed. He said that nobody in the art world cares about the actual piece of art. All they care about is the paper trail and this provenance. Wow. And Fiona says back to him, rightfully she's like yeah because of people like you who forge paintings <laughs> you know it's this great moment where they have this back and forth but but yeah like there's all of these places where you know even without even if it is a real painting and there's no malice involved like there just isn't a paper trailer you didn't think to keep the receipt or you didn't think to keep the thing or it was given to somebody and you know sometimes it is just things are just given to people and you don't write it down and you don't have anything to prove that it was given mm-hmm and so there's this sort of peeling, like you said, peeling away of the onion. And, and as a journalist, like that, 
making that process visible and sort of showing all of the layers of research that have to go into trying to figure out if this painting is real or not is fascinating. I mean, it's what drew, I think, a lot of people to things like Mystery Show, the podcast, or even Serial, the first season of that, like, how do you figure this out? And like, how do you find this answer? There was another episode that had the fake painter, the forger. His name was Tony Tetro in the <laughs> yeah, Chagall in episode. I would have watched an entire series on Tony Tetro. I wanted, I had so many questions for him. He seemed yeah. like such a character. He was living in some kind of like LA condominiums. He had this expensive car. Yeah. And he was capable of faking these, you know, super expensive paintings. Yeah. And he got caught. And I just wanted to find out so much more about him. Like, what was their life like where they're forging paintings? How does he make money now? Like, these characters everywhere in these shows are just so fascinating. Totally. Yeah, right. People, I would watch an entire show just about forgers. I think that's, like, so interesting. And and you can make so much money, right? Like, if if you're good at it, you can make a ton of money. Um, And and one thing that comes out in the Chagall... um, uh, episode is sort of the the amount of forging that happens, especially for these big name artists who, you know, everybody wants to have a Monet or a Chagall, you know, like these are names that people know. And there is there are so many people trying to fake to fake them. Yeah. Tony Tetro is is a is an interesting character. I would I would totally watch watch a show with him. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, there's a few scenes in this episode and you referenced too about how prevalent fakes are. Yeah. Um, This particular painting things start to take a downturn when they interview some experts and they talk about how in this, in this period of of Russian art, there's just so many fakes. And even this, this guy who has never seen it just kind of brushes it off. He's like, there's probably no way that's real. And eventually the big lead up, they, they take it to the committee, the granddaughters of Chagall run this committee and they approve Mm -hmm. pretty much everything for verification. Um, They say that, uh, unfortunately, it's not real. It's a fake. But not only that, but... Part of the reason why I wanted to get hold of you so urgently uh, is there's a bit of a bombshell at the end of the letter. Uh, on the basis, they say, um, that your painting is fake, in their opinion, um, the heirs of Marc Chagall request that it, your painting, be seized and then destroyed. Man, I would be so pissed if that <laughs> happened to me. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, the nail in the coffin for the Chagall episode was that they did forensic tests on the paint, and they showed that the paint that was used to paint it was not available at the time that Chagall was painting. Like, there's just no way that it could possibly have been by him. Um, and that, you know, doesn't happen that often on the show. That's um, a couple times you'll get, like, a very conclusive answer like that. Um, and that's kind of a nail in the coffin, right? Like, if you... There are things like titanium white which is a really common white paint that you know wasn't invented until i think it's the 30s or 40s um and this painting was painted in 1909 1910 so if that if that paint is in the painting then it just can't possibly have been by chagall and mm-hmm. so that was the case with this interestingly so that's how where the show ends that's where the episode ends where they're like you're seizing and destroying this painting i was like this episode aired in 2014, so I had some questions about like what happens next. And so I actually looked this up, and um, it turns out that the family did try to contest the 
um, the the ruling. They basically said, look, you know, we're not going to try to pass this off as a Chagall. Like, well, you can write a big X on the back of it. You can like do a bunch of stuff to it. But it's been in our family for so long. We're like attached to it as a painting. Can we still keep it? And the Chagall committee was like, no, absolutely not. Um and so as far as I can tell, and then basically the the man who owned the painting decided not to take them to court. They were, you know, you, they, he could have gone to French court. And this is part of the reason they're able to do this, just like seize and destroy, is that there's a law in France that um, allows this to happen, basically that sort of protects the legacy of artists. Um, and so this guy who's a British guy would have had to go to court in France and sort of challenge the Chagall committee. And he eventually decides not to. And so as far as I can tell, I couldn't find any articles that specifically say that this happened. But in 2014, February 2014, there was the article that he decided not to contest it. And so between now and then, which is now four years it's almost certainly been destroyed and it was almost certainly destroyed by being burned. So like God. this painting is pro- probably set on fire and destroyed, <laughs> which is like so wild. Oh my God. It's like the most extreme version of destruction you could possibly yeah, have. Totally. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, no, I mean, this is like, I like, this is like high drama on this like art history show. <laughs> I'm surprised they couldn't just, I'm surprised they didn't go back and then, have the fire take place in like a windowed room where the family could watch. I know, and then right? Get they the like shot of you. them like hugging each other as it burned in the background. True, like an effigy. Exactly. Yeah. No. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No. I mean, it's like very intense. I mean, that's why I, you asked like which one should I watch, and I was like, oh, you got to watch this one because it's like so. It gets like really intense at the end, and um, you know, the hosts um, who are you know Fiona Bruce is a journalist, but Philip Mold is an art dealer who has been in the art dealing world a lot. And he says in the episode, you know, he knew that this law existed, but he'd never heard of anybody actually invoking it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was cool. And so they were so surprised as that, like they actually went for it. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was, it's, it's a, it's a wild ride. (laughs) Yeah. Great episode. The, the other one was, um, let's see if I can pronounce the artist's name, right? Edouard, Edouard Voyard. Yeah. Edouard Voyard. Voyard. And this one, was just one of the best displays of investigation research that I, you know, that I'd literally ever seen in television in like real yeah. life television. <laughs> I know um, it's, this is Bendor at his finest, right? Like oh Bendor is God, the researcher Bendor. and he just comes up with stuff um, that you're just like, how did you find that? Like, how did you figure it? Yeah, it's, I, I love it. <laughs> and, the, and the thing, one thing we didn't even mention if people hadn't seen the show, but they speak with Bendor in this like, you know, this meeting room where they have a TV Super set up. It's lair. almost like, yeah. it's like real life CSI it's where it doesn't weird. look yeah. too, you know, dramatic, but like dramatic yeah. enough. The budget's yeah. not crazy and he's doing it on his iPad. It's beaming to a TV. It looks awesome. Yeah. But this yeah. one takes It's very much to... like oh, enhance. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and it works perfectly. They go to Paris, Geneva, Amsterdam. Um, this one has an amazing shot of them getting access to an underground vault yeah. I think in uh, was that Geneva? I think it was. Yeah, to see the the comparison. There's another piece that's a it's a group of paint. There was originally a group of paintings that this piece that they're investigating was part of. But it's this is the other interesting thing to me about the show is that I don't know anything about the art world, and so sometimes they'll have these moments where they have um, 
they they let you in on like the weirdness of private art collection you know like mm. this idea that this person owns this painting by a very famous french painter and it's in a vault in a basement somewhere like it's no one's even seeing it you know you have to like get access to it and you have to like go through all these hoops to kind of even get them to open up the box in this like dark basement thing to be able to look at it which is yeah. so bizarre to me it is it, like i mentioned indiana jones jokingly but it's like yeah. literally the scene where they have top men on it it's in just like a wooden crate in this yeah. big warehouse and not only that, but it's so sealed up. But when they open it, they're cutting the plastic that's protecting the painting right. and then rolling it up so that they can see that. Like, it's a real deal unboxing. Yeah, totally. It's, just, it's crazy that a dealer would, you know, for something that's to be seen, just to box it up and keep it in storage for whatever, however long. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't know the art world very well, but like, it does seem very strange to me that, you know, you probably spent a lot of money on this painting. Ostensibly, you like this painting because you bought it. I mean, maybe you bought it as an investment or whatever, but yeah. at least, you know, like let a museum hang it up. You know, like it's, this isn't just a random person who painted it. This is a very famous French post-impressionist. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. There's another episode where um, they have a painting and they one thing they like to do a lot because, you know, like we said earlier, often the scientific analysis can't give you the definitive like, yes, this was painted by this person. Um, and so often it comes down to a stylistic decision where basically you get experts together and you say, you know, does this look like a painting by, you know, John Constable or whoever? Um, and it's very subjective. Um, but in some cases, what's really important is you compare it to other paintings by that artist um, and you want to put them next to each other. And there is one episode where um, they they have found, they think, um, a really similar example of, of a painting with the sort of same little boy sort of character wearing the same red jacket. And often artists do this where they'll reuse figures in various paintings or they'll practice, you know, painting the same person over and over. And so they get access to looking at this picture but they're not allowed to show it on television. The person who owns it doesn't let them show it. So there's this very bizarre shot where they have, they're comparing the two side by side. And the one that we're, they're looking into on the episode is, you know, clear. And the one that they're comparing it to is blurred out. My and it's God. like so bizarre where I'm like, I don't understand. You own this painting and you're not like, for some reason, you've decided that you don't want to let anybody see it. Which like doesn't make any that sense. That is to crazy. Me. And it's but also yeah. crazy that there's like no existing photograph of it. Right. And that I mean, I guess really that's that's the allure too. Well, there are there's existing like photographs of it, but because they own the painting, even in the book, when they found this other example, they blurred out the photo of it in the book. <laughs> it just like it was that is so, so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's so bizarre. Where I was just like, I don't know. I'm not a super wealthy art collector, but like this seems totally weird <laughs> that seems totally bunk it's like I no own one the else print version of this, this. So you can, yeah. yeah you can't show a book that has that photo you can't even it. lay your eyes upon it you know it just <laughs> it's so weird like i don't understand it oh boy so this one the this particular one they have a run-in with this um committee the wildenstein that will eventually yeah, yeah. you know give the yay yeah or nay and they showed a clip of an earlier episode that i hadn't seen where yes. someone uh, was alleged to have a missing Monet painting. Yes. And this committee told them, unfortunately, no, it's not real. Or they ref they refused to verify it. Yeah. Um, had you seen that one before? Yeah, yeah. So the Wildenstein Institute is notoriously strict and they're notoriously difficult, especially um, when it's maybe something that they had seen before and you're asking them to 
potentially admit that they made a mistake mm. and that in fact it is you know, really a Monet or whatever it is. Um, and in that episode, um, you know, they assembled a, a case about this Monet that they felt very confident about, you know, it, it's television. So I, I don't, you know, how confident sure. they really are. I, you know, again, like we're sort of only seeing the version that they're presenting. Um, but they submitted it and they what they sort of claimed they thought was like a really bulletproof package of information. And the Wildenstein Institute said no. And then what comes out later in the episode is basically that, there are these various institutions like the Wildenstein Institute. Um, and they are these sort of like storied, you know, like historical, just very, very long running institutes that have a lot of um, ego and clout and sort of like importance. Um, and they are very proud of the work that they do and they hate each other um, mm. because they're sort of these rival art houses basically. And so the Wildenstein Institute said no to this Monet and another um, another institute said yes, thinking that it was one. And what happens is that um, basically the people from the other institute, I can't remember the name of it, but they are they sort of claim that, of course, the Wildenstein Institute, you know, if we say it's real, then they're going to always contest that because they don't want to be seen as like, you know, admitting that we were right and they were wrong, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is all of this back and forth. Um, and, and so the Wildenstein Institute comes up a couple of times in this show um, and they are always very, very difficult. And so when they submitted this one to the Wildenstein Institute, they basically were like, I don't think this is going to happen because they're so strict. There was one strange instance where the Institute was alleged to have been open to bribes, but the offer had to be a custom scarf from halfdoubledesign.com, not your granny's crochet. Amanda is able to create a custom infinity scarf, blanket, princess wig, winter cap, you name it. You won't regret it. Halfdoubledesign.com. This one, you can even tell in um, uh, her face as soon as he mentions yeah. who's going to be reviewing it. She's like, ah, nuts. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this is one where they have, you know, they don't have scientific evidence, but Bendor finds oh, basically Bendor. a picture, a schematic of the restaurant that it was originally, this painting was originally hanging in where the painting is there. Like it, they just find like exact descriptions of the painting. They go through all of these letters and all of these accounts of this very famous cafe in Paris that the, this, um, this painting hung in. And they basically assemble this essentially case where it's very clear that this painting, at least a painting that looks just like this painting, mm -hmm. um, did hang in this restaurant with these other, you know, known gr groupings. Um, and it just, there's this moment where he just, he like turns the page and reveals the drawing of the restaurant where the painting is, is right there and you can see it. Oh, and you're just like, Oh, God. <laughs> like, I mean, the, it's so crazy how much work he must put into this. Yeah. And remember he had that, like, um, you know, that like freebie they gave out at the cafe on yeah. like opening day, that fan. Yeah. And he did the slow reveal of that right. as yeah. well. Yeah, it's like, where did you even find that? I, and it's in pristine condition. Yeah. It looked like it could have been made yesterday. I don't yeah. know how it didn't disintegrate as soon as they opened that fan. Yeah. This episode had so many, so many like well-researched pages. The one, the real, like they mentioned the Windsor Magazine that had an interview with uh, one of the purported owners talking about... Um, a painting by this same artist. They didn't mention the painting. And he's like, this could be our painting. And this is just like one piece of evidence. Yeah. I don't even know how he would find this magazine. 
But eventually they go to, I think, Amsterdam, where they, like, through happenstance, through conversations of previous owners, say that it was on exhibition in Amsterdam at, at, you know, 1928. And so they go to Amsterdam and they talk to this guy. I think he's, like, the essentially the historian of this exhibition house. And he finds a scrapbook (laughs) from two years around the time that this exhibition took place. And one of my notes was just this amazing meeting room he was in to show her the scrapbook. I wanted to work in that meeting room. Oh, my God, it was amazing. (laughs) He pulls it out. They have a newspaper article describing the painting. He has it translated for and it describes exactly the painting that they own that was at this exhibition. I couldn't believe they were able to uncover that as evidence. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, one thing that the show does make me think about a lot is like, there are so many moments like that throughout the series where, you know, somebody's got this book of newspaper clippings from, you know, 1928 that like describe everything that was inside this exhibition that ran for two weeks in Amsterdam, right? That's like a very specific thing. And they they find these kinds of like physical clippings all the time. And I, I think about now where like, Paper trails aren't physical paper trails. And we think like, oh, yeah, we save everything because it's so much easier to store information and blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't know that we do. Like, I don't think that that exists for current pieces of art where there is somebody who went through and described in detail what each painting looked like and then, you know, cut out that newspaper clipping and put it in a book so that in, you know, a 100 years Ben Dorr's great-great-grandkid can, like, go find it so that they can prove that some painting is real. Like, I just don't... Like, what does this kind of record-keeping look like now? Because it is incredibly interesting, the amount of bookkeeping and record-keeping and, um, like, clippings that they find from these, Mm -hmm. you know, often... Most of the paintings they're looking at are from, you know, late 1800s to mid-19th century, or 1900s. Um, And so it, it is a certain specific time, and I just don't know like what that looks like in a hundred years from now. Like what are, what does it look like when, you know, we want to prove a painting existed in a cafe in Paris now? I don't think that that that, that scrapbook exists then, you know, like, I don't know. Somebody used that scrapbook for food at some point, probably. (laughs) The, The one thing it reminded me was listening to, you know, like there's a few spooky, um, fiction podcasts where they do research And there's one episode of one podcast in particular where a lot of the research they just said, I found this on the dark web. (laughs) And like, that's the amount of research that they've done. (laughs) Like, this was the equivalent of like modern day research that I was thinking of. It just cracked me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, another fantastic episode. Um, I can't wait to watch the rest. I mean, the amount of of work they put into these episodes, they're like 60 minutes long, no commercials. Yeah. Yeah, and they're like God. full BBC meandering, you know, yeah. like they're really, they take their time. Like it's very much uh, a BBC slow documentary show. Um, but I do think that they're like, I've always been totally riveted. So um, the one, if you're going to do another one, one I would recommend is um, the the Van Dyke. So it's, um, it's series two, episode three. Um, and it's this incredible, basically, um, Philip Mould buys a painting because mm. he thinks that it's actually a hidden painting of something else. And they do oh this God. incredible thing with all this science and like uncover to see if there's actually a hidden painting of this person behind the painting that he bought. Um, 
it's amazing. It's so interesting. And there's a couple of others where, you know, when they do x-rays of the painting, they actually find another painting behind it. You know, there's just stuff like that where it's like so incredible um, what they're able to do with like science and with this research. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I love it. It's such a good show. <laughs> Now, as most people know, you host your own podcast. You produce your own podcast yourself, Flash Forward. Yeah. And it starts off with kind of like an audio drama about mm-hmm. a potential future that could be, you know, far away, not so far away. And then you talk to actual experts um, about the topic. What was yeah. your earliest introduction to science fiction growing up? Did you have like a book or something or a movie that hit you oh, so man. hard? You're like, I'm in, I'm all in. So my dad is a huge science fiction nerd. Um, and so basically from the earliest I can remember, we were reading science fiction um, mm. and fantasy. So as a kid, actually, my parents were just visiting and they reminded me of this, which I had kind of forgotten. Um, as a kid, my parents would read to me like many parents do to their children. Um, and one of the things that I my first memory, the first thing I remember them reading to me was The Hobbit. Um, And we would get in the big bed, which I called the big bed. I'm sure it was just a regular size bed. And (laughs) they would read The Hobbit to me. And I was super into it. And um, I actually decided as a kid that I didn't want to learn how to read because if I learned how to read, my parents would stop reading to me. Mm. And I was like, that seems like a raw deal. Don't want it. (laughs) And so I just refused to learn how to read. Um, And my mom was like, what am I going to do? Like, I can't, what am I supposed to do about this? And so she, you know, she had all these meeting, concerned meetings with the t- teachers and was like, I don't know what to do. She, she refuses to learn wow. how to read. Um, and finally they were like, all right, I guess we'll get her like a hooked on phonics kind of like, you know, audio cassette program mm-hmm. thing. Um, and, and in true, this is sort of a story that really encapsulates my true personality, which is that I am motivated by mostly obstinance and uh, being just like prickly. And the I hated this thing so much that I learned to read like in a week because I was just like, I can't, I hate it. I was like, I don't want to do this. And my mom was like, well, if you don't want to do the hooked on phonics, you just have to learn how to read. And I was like, fine. <laughs> um, but so I did read that was the first stuff I read was all mostly fantasy. So a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin, um, the Earthsea trilogy, a lot of that stuff. And then my dad had a set of um uh, the Hardy brothers. He also had a set. Uh, he had all these sets of like old school science fiction. Mm. Um, and, um, and he had, you know, the Tom Swift series, mm-hmm. which is this very long running science fiction book series that is about a like wonderkind adventure boy. Um, and it's like Tom Swift and the amazing underwater flying machine, you know, like oh, all yeah. these sort of like ridiculous things. Um, and I'm sure it d- doesn't age well. I'm sure it's very sexist and racist because it was all published <laughs> in like the 40s and 50s. But I read those. So I got really very early on. I was very into science fiction. It actually like I think came back to bite me because I didn't end up reading a bunch of the like popular science fiction when I was in middle school, like Harry Potter came out and I was like, I'm good. I've already read this story. And then I like missed the Harry Potter cultural phenomenon because I was like too much of a nerd. (laughs) So (laughs) Tom Swift's, uh, you mentioned, I'm I'm almost positive that there is a comic book called Tom strong. 
by Alan oh. Moore that is like a take yes. on that. that yes, kind I think of that's right. Yeah. Eats up all of the dated references that yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. The comics were not a big, I haven't cracked a Tom Swift book in many years in part out of fear because I'm just like, I know this is going to be terrible and I, I don't really want to be like faced mm. with it, you know, full on. Um, I, comics were not a huge part of my growing up because my, you know, my dad didn't read comics and I was really into novels. Um, I didn't actually get into comics or comic books or really until college when I got into like graphic novels, obviously as like a sort of gateway right. um, into that. Um, and like, you know, the the classic graphic novels that you read, like Watchmen and like all those, right. That like yeah. everybody knows. Sandman. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so it wasn't, I, as a kid, I didn't read a ton of comics, which, um, which is sort of weird, but yeah, I just, it was never something that we, we had in the house. So I didn't, I didn't read them. Have you ever read, um, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing? Yes. Oh, what'd you think? I mean, I love Alan Moore in the way that like you love like a weird uncle who sometimes you're like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what are so, you up to? <laughs> yeah. Like, eh, I don't know how I feel about that. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean like, so weird and seminal to like so many things and you can see the influence of all of his work everywhere so it's so mm-hmm. fascinating to read um and to kind of look at yeah well, alan moore swamp thing is like my number two favorite <laughs> oh nice novel. what's your number one uh fear agent which oh, is um it's an image book by rick remender and a few other artists but it's about this like alien exterminator uh, oh, essentially sweet. but he's also like an alcoholic and it deals with kind of um, an alien invasion on Earth. So he's forced into space, but then just pretty much everything bad on Earth that has happened is his fault, and he comes back to Earth to try to right it. Wow. Um, but yes, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, I just adore it. There's so many good stuff, so much yeah. good like one-shot stories. Uh, can't get enough of it. Do you listen to other podcasts? What's your what's like your go-to podcast on a weekly or daily basis? I do listen to other podcasts, although not as much as I wish I did. Um, in part because I, well, A, there's so many shows out there that I like want to listen to. And I feel like, I don't know how anyone has time to listen to all the shows. Um, and also because I work from home, so I don't have a commute exactly. So like my listening time is, is like a lot of the times that people often listen to podcasts, like when they're commuting or when they're driving or whatever, like I don't have those spaces in my day. Um, but all that said, um, I listen to, I try to dabble. So I try to listen to a lot of things, but I don't listen to anything really super regularly. Um, I mostly dip in and out of stuff that I think seems interesting. But um, currently I'm listening to Ologies a lot, which is Mm -hmm. um, a podcast about science and it's hosted by Ali Ward. And um, it basically is the way, what what the show sounds like. Every episode she interviews a different ologist. So like a meteorologist (laughs) or a, Mm -hmm. you know, entomologist or whatever. Um, and it's just funny and she's a really good interviewer and she always gets really interesting people and it's um, it's sort of irreverent and and silly, but also fascinating. So I listened to um, No Such Thing as a Fish, which mm. is a British show um, by the folks who are the researchers on QI, the show, the television show. Um, and it is uh, the, the structure is that there's four of them. They're all very funny. And they each bring a fact, a science fact to the sort of group and then kind of talk about it. And then they add other facts and it's funny and it um, it, it's really paced really well. I feel like often shows that are four people chatting can get really slow because four people is a lot, but they all have really great comedic timing and are really funny. And so um, that's a really um, a fun one to listen to. I liked No Man's Land, which is a recent podcast from The Wing about women's history. Hmm. Um, And it's sort of just each episode is a different woman or group of women that, you know, you probably should know, but maybe don't know. Um, 
That was really it's a pretty fun. Good list. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, there's there's so many there's so many podcasts. There is. Yeah. <laughs> you you recently did an episode, the one one of my call outs from your show, uh, where you literally took online drugs to oh, yeah. like improve your fitness, <laughs> which spun out of uh, Fitness in a Bottle, I think it was called. Yeah. But there the one that's not even the craziest thing I wanted to talk about from that episode. <laughs> there's you mentioned in your 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 control your training of running a like a, yeah, a minute mile mm-hmm. but you called a slow mile seven minutes it's not that slow <laughs> i know it's so i didn't say this in the episode because i was trying to make it really tight um and and cut it down but i used to be like a runner like a true proper like runner um mm-hmm. and trained and you know it was very like running was my thing and um and so i have like a very warped idea of what is like a normal <laughs> speed for things. Right. Um, and uh, and so like I used to run, you know, 530 miles a lot. Ugh, and God. like, I know that that's like a not a, like, you know, whatever. And so, to and I, I actually quit running because it was so stressful. I was so stressed out about mm. like running and time and like all that stuff. And um, I was always kind of on like the edge of being in the top three on my team. So I was always number four. And so I was always like very stressed out about all of this. And so when I was doing this episode and I was like, oh my God, I have to go back to the track and I have to like run these miles where I have this totally warped sense of what's normal and what I should be able to do, even though like I'm not training, I haven't been training for years, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's definitely my, that is my own problem. And I definitely recognize that that's like not the right number. Like, you know, you it even mentioned it sense. like in the recording yeah. because at the end of each mile, I think you were saying to your partner, you're like, I think I'm going to go cry now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really stressful. Actually, I wasn't expecting it to be so stressful. I like, we went to the track and I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll just do this. And I like got really nervous. I got really mm. nervous, like in that same way that I would get nervous before races that mattered. And I'd have to remind myself like, this doesn't matter. It's just a silly experiment for the show. It does. It's okay. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Like no one's yelling at you. Like your yeah. time doesn't matter. But yeah, I had that like that, you know, when you get really nervous before like public speaking or whatever it is that you do like that really like agitated feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really surprised at how freaked out I was. <laughs> There's another aspect of the show, which I always enjoyed when it came up. Um, sometimes when there's a guest talking on the show and their audio is kind of like clear, like it's almost as if they're recording it themselves. And then sometimes you come on for a follow-up question in the moment, but it sounds like you're the one on the phone. And it's like this weird switch <laughs> yeah. that like, it, it was like, oh my God, what is happening? I love it. I've yeah. never heard that before in like an interview series. And I just thought it was like the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I, I used to, I mean, I always record myself, my side in two ways I record it just whatever like the Skype audio is which is the one that you end up hearing and I also record it on a like nice microphone so that it sounds normal Mm -hmm. but I found that it was kind of awkward because the show is is narrated right so there's a lot of stuff where I'm narrating and cutting it together and then if I have a question in the moment it sounds weird it sounds like I'm faking the question almost like I'm I like tracked it to like sound like I was asking the question in the moment when in fact I actually was asking the question in the moment so like I I sort of end up using that weird audio because it's sort of a way to be like, this isn't like pre-recorded narration. This is actually the question that I have or actually my reaction to what they just said or whatever Mm. it is. But yeah, it's a little funny because I used to, I mean, I do have it and I used to try to use it and I I just felt like weird. Like I was, yeah, like I was faking it or something like I was acting. (laughs) There's the the, the other thing that like uh, I noticed in, I don't know, I think the daily does it when they're interviewing somebody 
they're using like a shotgun mic and then sometimes they come with like a follow-up question and you can like hear the shotgun mic like swerve <laughs> from yeah. the guest to them <laughs> yeah. because they've like started talking and I think it's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, it's really hard to like real time get the mic back and forth if you're actually yeah. having it back and forth. <laughs> yeah. If you weren't creating Flash Forward and like doing your own thing where you were the sole purpose or the sole person doing the creation, what do you think you'd be doing in your in your kind of like creative outlet? I don't know. I mean, I am like, part of the reason I went into journalism is that I'm very interested in lots of different things and somewhat restless, right? So I thought I was going to be a scientist. I was like, science is very cool. I'm really interested in science. I should go get a PhD, right? And become a scientist. That mm -hmm. seems like the normal path. Um, but in doing so, you sort of have to really commit to trying to answer maybe three questions, right? In In your time as a scientist. Like if you can really actually answer three questions, you're doing a very, very good job as a scientist. Um, and I was like, I have 9 million questions. Like I could not focus on any one field. I applied for PhD programs in like four different, completely different disciplines, um, which is not a good sign. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and I had an advisor um, who was very kind and was like, I don't think you should get a PhD. I mean, you could, but like, I don't think you'd like it. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who actually suggested journalism because it allows you to ask all those questions and sort of dabble in all those different fields. Um, and so that's, you know, I do that, you know, I do flash forward, but I also freelance as a journalist, started writing, you know, magazine pieces and online pieces and all that stuff. Um, and that's really satisfying because I get to really jump around, you know, and even with flash forward, you know, one episode's about right exercise pills and the next episode is about, you know, trying to have a baby in space. And, you know, I just get to like do all these different things. Um, I think the thing that I would love to do more of in this sort of dabbling uh, way is more different kinds of um, like media. So I, you know, I, I write online, I write in magazines, I do the podcast, but I'm really interested in like, is there a way to like write a TV show or like write a movie? Like, mm. would that be really fun? Um, but I think it's very hard for me to stay in one place for very long. Um, and so there's, a, I do a lot of like trying different things. So actually I'm working on a screenplay right now just to see what it's like to write one. Um, I mean, I'm sure it will never see the light of day, but like it is really fun. And it's the, is it the uh, film adaptation of Tom Swift? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's based on um, it's based on an episode of Flash Forward, actually. So um, mm. so yeah, it's it, that's been really fun. And so, yeah, I don't I think that if I wasn't doing Flash Forward, I would probably still be doing weird like science and fiction adjacent stuff, but probably just in different formats. And maybe I mean, I'm hoping to still do that. That sounds fun. Thanks so much to rose for coming on subscribe to her podcast flash forward learn something along with me uh her next season drops i believe march of 2019 i'll be listening i hope you will too as you saw on twitter stickers and pins have gone out to those that have reviewed the show on itunes um just so long as you live in the states dirk you'll be getting yours soon if you haven't gotten one yet dm me on twitter let me know your address so i can get you some goodies Thanks so much for doing so. Thanks for spreading the word of the show to new folks. There are about three episodes-ish left this season. And as always, if you dig the show, stop what you're doing. Maybe pause what you're doing. You don't have to stop, but share a link to an episode with a friend over email, social media. Retweet the show. Send a link out. Uh, that's your mission for today. Uh, it's always much appreciated. Next week's episode involves a topic I thought I'd never discuss. Ever in history. 
no desire to, but it came calling. And that's next week's show. I'm getting older, hopefully a bit wiser, you know, more open to new things. Open your mind with me next week. Stay tuned. Goodbye. <laughs>